This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. So we're going to continue um, with the covenant with Abraham. We're just to remind you that we are um, simply describing the character or the nature of this covenant with Abraham. We're emphasizing it and spending so much time upon it because of its central place in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses it as effectively the, the model for the gospel. He explains it as the gospel um, of promise in the Old Testament. And so if we understand the Abrahamic covenant, we've gone a long way to understanding the gospel, the covenant of grace. And so we've looked at how, first of all, the, this covenant was a covenant um, of promise, of grace. Then we looked at how it was um, a covenant of God's sovereignty, both in terms of election and in terms of his power, power to save and power to keep. And that's what we looked at last time. And tonight we're looking at one further and last characteristic of this covenant with Abraham, namely that this covenant with Abraham is a command to a life of obedience. It's a command to a life of obedience. And it's important to emphasize right at the beginning tonight and to bear in mind through everything that I have to say that this covenant God made with Abraham contained promises which God promised to deliver and to keep. He made an oath. We've studied how God made an oath that he through his own power would ensure that the promised blessings, the kingdom blessings would be realized to the full. But we must note tonight, very carefully, that just as there is with the gospel or the covenant of grace, there is a condition of human responsibility within the terms and the promises of this covenant. Now, some versions or accounts of um, reformed teaching Give the, at least give the distinct impression, at least, that man has nothing at all to do and is simply saved with no human response whatsoever. And that is false. That's not Calvinism. It is unbiblical. Reformed people, reformed teaching rightly says that God chooses us rather than we choose him. But to become a Christian you do have to make a decision. You do have to make a choice to repent and, re and believe the gospel. And without the exercise of human responsibility, you will not be saved. Uh, and, and the reformed reformers never taught anything different than that. And in the covenant with Abraham, this conditionality does not reduce or um, take away the guarantee that the promises of the covenant will be fulfilled. In other words, the obligations which the covenant set out 
do not contradict, contradict it being a covenant of pure grace apart from works. And so when we present the gospel of grace, we must do so without leaving the impression that there is nothing for man to do in response to the gospel. And we will see tonight that within this covenant with Abraham, which Paul describes in the, in the New Testament as according to promise rather than works, there are divine commands which demand obedience in connection with the reception of the promises. We notice in the patriarchs, for example, those who follow Abraham, the inheritors of this covenant, that they took oaths and vows promising to comply with the obligations God set out in the covenant with Abraham. So the purpose of tonight's study is to try and get this balance right in the way we present the gospel. How to explain the gospel as a free gift, not requiring our works, completely based on free grace, and yet at the same time to be faithful to preach that man is under a command or an obligation to exercise human responsibility to believe the gospel, to repent and heed the call to follow Christ. So in order to do that, let's go back to the beginning of this covenant, which is chapter 12 and verse 1 following. Chapter 12 and verse 1, I won't read it as such, but keep your eye upon it. This is Abraham's call. This is God's call to Abraham and the first revelation of what this covenant would be like. And what do we notice right at the start? Well, we read these words, don't we? Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. So the way this covenant is introduced, this covenant which the New Testament calls the covenant of promise, the covenant of grace, the way it is introduced to Abraham is in the form of a command. The promises follow in the following verses after the command in the next two verses. So the point here is that Abraham had received, received promises, but the only way he can enter into those promises is to obey the command that forms part of the covenant. So how are we to understand this in terms of the whole Bible? Because we know from the Apostle Paul that he makes a distinction between the Abrahamic covenant covenant with Abraham and the Mosaic covenant the covenant with Moses the law of Moses the law includes a principle of works do this and you will live the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace 
appropriated by faith or through faith apart from works. So what is the difference between me saying there is this obligation within the covenant of grace and the law of Moses? What we should say as reformed Christians, as reformed believers, is that the promises within the Abrahamic covenant were not secured and are not secured on the ground or principle of our obedience. However, we have to say that the covenant promises do not exist apart from human obligations to obey. In other words, we could say that woven into the very promises themselves are obligations to the people of God. Now, this will become clearer, I hope, when we turn to the New Testament and we look at the Lord Jesus himself. Now, no evangelical Christian would ever say that Jesus preached the gospel on the principle of works or the principle of do this and live, which is in the law of Moses. And yet, just like God's giving of promises to Abraham, Jesus offers the gospel in the context of a summons or a command to follow me. His call to discipleship is very similar, in fact, to that given to Abraham. And that, of course, is no coincidence. It was quite deliberate. Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 8, um, 22, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. John 1, 43, the day following Jesus, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, follow me, and so it could go on. So here is Jesus, the preacher of this gospel, this free grace gospel, presenting the gospel to sinners in the form of a command and an, and an obligation upon them to exercise their human responsibility to obey him and follow him. And just as Abraham had to leave all and follow the Lord to a land, he would be shown So the disciples of Jesus are to follow him as the way to everlasting life. And so the promises of the gospel, simply in, in their nature and in their form, impose requirements of, of covenant life in the form of demands and calls to obedience. Now that is very different than saying... That there is a principle of works. In other words that, that you have to meet a certain standard. Before you enter the promises. This is saying that in order to, in order to become part of the covenant. In order 
to embrace the covenant, you are embracing and responding to a call to follow Christ and to be obedient to him. In other words, to be a Christian by definition is to be in a covenantal is to be in covenantal discipleship under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, which requires a denial of self and a following after him. Mark 8, 34, And when Jesus had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that is, this is not preached today. Of course, the, the, often the way Christian grace is presented is that it's some kind of fluid which comes down from heaven and which... Um, is, is, is how you become a Christian. But grace is simply the kindness of God providing Jesus Christ to be our Saviour. And therefore to embrace that gift, to embrace Jesus, means you have to follow him. You have to respond to his call to follow me. And so as with Abraham... Originally a heathen, a pagan, becoming a Christian means turning from idols to serve the true God. John 12:26 says, "If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So what is becoming a Christian? What is being a Christian? It is following Jesus, being where he is, honouring him, serving him. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, that's what Abraham did. He had to do that to enter into the covenant that God was making with him. Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Exactly the same command as to Abraham. Leave your old life, leave your idols, leave the, uh, and follow me to a land that I will show you. That is the gospel call. And how similar God's call to Abraham is to leave your country and your people and your father's household, to separate himself from idolatry and to commit himself to covenantal service with God. Christ's call to his disciples at the outset of the new covenant was a repetition of the call to Abraham in the Old Testament. Now somewhere along the line, dear friends, um, the preaching of the gospel, even in the evangelical church, has completely lost track of this. It's lost this emphasis, it's lost this note um, 
The apostles contended for the fact that the gospel was a free gift to be received by faith. But they couched the offer of this gift in terms of a command and a call to human responsibility. Not human ability, which is what the Arminians say. But a command to sinners to do what they are under an obligation to do. It says in Acts 17.30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now that's how we should be preaching the gospel, not, not a give, take it or leave it approach, or try this on a sort of um, trial period and see if it works for you. See if it fits with your lifestyle. I know people don't say it in such an extreme way, but that's how evangelicals now present the gospel. Well, what did the apostles do, the early evangelists? They commanded, because that's how God's covenant comes to us, as a command, a call. That's how Jesus called his disciples, all of his disciples, leave your nets and follow me. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And we've forgotten that. That needs to be our message too. Um, I don't see the apostles in the Bible spending their time going around emphasising how sinners are unable to respond to the gospel. And of course that's true. But if you go through the Acts of the Sermons and the Acts of the Apostles, there's not one mention of that. But there's plenty of mention of the fact that they are under a responsibility to believe the Gospel. And that needs to be our emphasis. The problem often in Reformed churches is that we spend all our time emphasising people's inability and never their responsibility. gospel is presented in the scriptures as repent and believe the gospel not that you cannot repent and believe the gospel but that you must salvation is all of grace but it demands a response in the sinner and without that response i don't care what the theology you bring no one will be saved no one can self-generate the new birth Yet Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not you can, you must. You see, our concern as, a, as Christians, as evangelists, as, as, a, as preachers is, not, our concern should not be about the sinner's ability. This is what we go on about the whole time, unbiblically in my view. Our emphasis should be on their, not on their ability or inability, but on their responsibility. Because that's how the scriptures are presented. You must be born again. You must repent. You must believe. And we see the same characteristic in this Abrahamic covenant. Let's look at, for example, chapter 17, our reading, and verse, and verse 1. Look at verse 1. God... <coughs> God is about to, um, in this chapter, he reiterates wonderful promises. But before he gets to the promises, 
what, we, what does he say in verse 1? He says, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? This gospel of grace and, and introducing it. And the first thing God says, I am the almighty God, El Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect. And so as with the Christian in the new covenant, the goal and purpose of the covenant was to, is to perfect and complete the image of God in Abraham and all those who are elect according to promise. And of course we know Abraham in his everyday life was never, was never perfect. The paperwork in heaven said he was perfect because he was justified by faith. But on the ground in his real life he was never perfect. But God still says you must be perfect and walk before me in perfectness, in holiness. And that's what the New Testament says to the new believer and to us who are existing believers. The obedience of, of Abraham, of course, uh, is a theme in Genesis and it's summarised in the New Testament by the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 8. It says there, uh, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. And scripture presents Abraham as, a, as the faithful friend of God. Um, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7 says Ar, Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever. He was so obedient and faithful he, was, he became known as God's friend. James 2 verse, 20, verse 23 says and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So we see from this, from all of this, that although the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise, governed by a principle of divine grace, with a cast iron guarantee from God, through a divine oath that all these promises would be kept. Nevertheless, this covenant was an administration of the kingdom of a holy God. And because of that, it was bound to place holy demands upon the subjects of this covenant. And that's true for us. We are part of a of a new covenant, free, everything is ready. God has, through Christ, provided everything. But we are entering in by grace, through faith, into a covenant with a holy God. And therefore, there are holy demands upon us. Be holy, the Bible says, as I am holy. Another um, important aspect of this Abrahamic covenant 
in this aspect of it being a characterized by obligations and commands is that as we read in, in this chapter 17 God builds into the covenant with Abraham a vow of consecration as an outward sign of entrance into the covenant this is the oath of circumcision which is introduced in chapter 17 and chapter 17 begins with a theophany which we've talked about before, what a theophany is, and which we've seen, in which we see that the Lord identifies to Abraham, he identifies himself to Abraham, and demands allegiance. He says, walk before me and be thou perfect. And then in verse 2, the Lord reiterates one of the promises of the covenant, that is to say, the multiplication of Abraham's posterity I will multiply thee exceedingly and then he mentions also that I will make my covenant between me and thee this is verse 2 and there although he's not specifically naming it the Lord is referring to the requirement of circumcision which is about to be imposed and the rest of this chapter uh, alternates between the theme of promise and the theme of circumcision so circumcision here is presented as the sign the outward sign and symbol of the Abrahamic covenant it's not a separate covenant it is the sign of the covenant an outward sign with a symbolic meaning it says in verse 11 of chapter 17, And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token, a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Now as we're going through this series, you may have already noticed that all of God's covenants have outward signs or seals, confirmatory signs. Sometimes, as, uh, as with circumcision, the sign is used as a shortcut to describe the covenant itself. This happens in the New Testament with baptism. Sometimes water baptism is used to stands in for the new covenant which is actually symbolises. This is misinterpreted by some denominations, which is why they believe in baptismal regeneration, failing to understand that point the sabbath is the outward sign of the covenant with moses it's the outward sign of the law and sometimes the sabbath is referred to as a covenant but it's standing in for the mosaic covenant um, the covenant of common grace with noah had a sign the rainbow sat in the sky that was the outward visible sign of that covenant which is still in place that is a live covenant today with a live outward symbol Jesus identified the communion cup as the new covenant in his blood although we all know that that is an outward sacrament an outward ordinance or sign of the new covenant but Jesus called it the covenant in my blood 
talking about the cup. And um, as baptism and communion are the outward signs of the new covenant, circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant with Abraham. And so when we look at the symbolic meaning of circumcision, it underlines our main point tonight, that the Abrahamic covenant um, is a covenant, although free, full of grace, requires or, or, or places obligations and demands of obedience upon those who are part of the covenant. So what is the symbolism in circumcision? What is it symbolizing? Well, to understand what circumcision means, um, we start with the actual um, circumcision ceremony itself. It is a, a covenantal knife or cutting rite. And in a similar way to the dismembering of those animals in Genesis 15, where God walked through the middle of those uh, animals and made an oath. In a similar way, it portrays the curse of God that comes upon anyone who breaks the Abrahamic covenant. As circumcision is an act of cutting of, off of the flesh, so the one who fails to observe the covenant through failure to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant. Chapter 17, verse 14. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. We could say that's the negative meaning of circumcision. But the positive, positively, Circumcision, circumcision stood for the, a response to the Lord's demand for devotion and obedience. And that's how circumcision is mainly presented in the rest of Scripture. It, it, it symbolically stands for the obedience of a sinner to this covenant. And this is why we get verses like Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a circumcision of the heart, of obedience. And as it was supposed to be performed on a child of eight days old or on an adult who came from another religion or tribe or a, a nation, it stood also for entrance into or inauguration into the covenant with Abraham. Now, this is an amazing thing, dear friends. We, we have thought about this a bit when we, when we were looking at Genesis 15. But what this means is that a sign, an outward symbol of God's judgment 
this striking off, this cutting off of, a, of someone who refuses to be circumcised becomes the entrance ceremony for the covenant of promise. No one could enter into this covenant unless they were circumcised, and no male, of course. But just let that sink in, because that is so significant. Because as in chapter 15, within, within the covenant of promise, God's act of judgment takes on a, a, an unexpected meaning. God's judgment becomes the means, the vehicle, the mode of his grace, of redemption. If you remember, we studied at some length how in Genesis 15, those animals which were cut in parallel lines and the darkness that descended and the Lord walking through the midst in a theophany signified the judgment curse that the Lord would, that the Lord would suffer if he broke the covenant. Of course, we, knew, we know the Lord would never have broken his covenant. But he still took the oath. He said, if I break this covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And we looked at how that pointed to the redemptive sacrifice of the Saviour. It was a prophecy of that judgment curse of Christ in Golgotha that resulted in the salvation of God's people. And in a very similar way, circumcision is employed in the scriptures as an image for the redemptive judgment undergone by Christ. Paul spoke of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the circumcision of Christ. Now we know that as a Jew, the Lord Jesus was circumcised at 12 days old, but he had a far more important circumcision. The circumcision of the cross. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's not talking about his circumcision at 12 years old. He's talking about the cross. How Jesus was cut off because he, we covenant breakers deserve to be cut off, but he was cut off on our behalf. That judgment circumcision which was due to us, he took. And that's why the cross is called the circumcision of Christ. And so in that wonderful way, the symbolism of circumcision, that which symbolises judgment, becomes salvation. We saw exactly the same thing with Noah, didn't we? How the judgment waters, in the end, became the means of salvation. It was the judgment waters that destroyed the old world, which, was going to, which would have destroyed any, any hope of the promised Messiah coming. And it was because of God's judgment that Messiah could come. In the full light of scripture, 
Circumcision signifies divine judgment in its fullest, fullest sense. But where there is God's judgment, there is always death to some, and there's always life to some. His judgment on the many becomes the means of salvation for the few. Ultimately, God's people in Sodom and Gomorrah were saved by the brimstone that came down. It was the means of judgment for many, but the means of salvation for that handful, for that few. In the end the world of the world, the people of God will be saved by fire, and out of the judgment fires will come a new heaven and a new earth. And the final element of salvation will then be fulfilled. And so with circumcision, on the one hand it conveyed the threat of being cut off from God. For the one who refuses the grace of the covenant breaks it in that case that person will have to undergo the judgment themselves but on the other hand circumcision presents the promise of the cross it invites symbolically the circumcised one to faith in Christ to un to undergo the judgment of breaking the covenant not in himself, but believing in the substitutionary judgment of Christ. And so find in Christ's circumcision in his cross the way to the Father. The way to justification and life with God. Paul puts it in terms of being buried with him in baptism. Wherein you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. That, that is our Christian experience. If we are in Christ, if we know Christ, if we obey him, then his cross stands in... The punishment that he took upon the cross means that we do not have to be punished ourselves. That punishment is full and enough to satisfy God's judgment and the merit of Christ. The value of his cross, the value of his death is attributed to us, imputed to us, transferred to us so that we can be free of the curse of a broken covenant. And it's because of this symbolism contained in the sign of circumcision that Paul refers to it as the seal, the seal in Romans 4 verse 11 he's talking about Abraham he says and Abraham received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also and so as we come to a, nearly come to an end, the meaning of circumcision, as you trace it through the scriptures, confirms our point this evening, that the outward sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant 
emphasises the character of the covenant as one of promise, but which in the very nature of the promise and as the way to enter into the promise requires devotion and obedience. Because if you were not circumcised, you were cut off. Obedience is not the ground or the cause of the spiritual blessings in this covenant with Abraham. But obedience is in a sense part and parcel and inseparable from the redemption that it offers. And that helps us how to present the gospel and understand the gospel. Faith in this salvation that God offers is an obedience of faith. That's how the Bible puts it. This is how the apostle understood the gospel. Romans 1 verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So when we present the gospel, and we, we don't do, you know, I think we, we're trying to do that, but this is completely lost today in evangelical preaching. What we're, when we present the gospel, what are we presenting? What are we offering? We're offering obedience to the faith among the nations all nations for his name and this is forgotten the grace and the and the apostolic writings are given to us for obedience not that we buy obedience earn grace and rev and earn grace but the result and purpose of the grace which we receive without our work, without any merit on our behalf, results in our obedience to a gracious God. And on this, both the Old and the New Testament scriptures insist that true circumcision is a matter of heart obedience to the Lord. Um, in the New Testament baptism is the outward sign but the real baptism is, is, a, is a baptism of the heart it's heart obedience that the gospel see, produces and demands um, Moses says in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Again in chapter 36 it says, 30 verse 6 it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Paul put it this way. In Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew. Which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision. Which is, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew. Which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit. And not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men. But of God. You see, the real spiritual core of, of, of the covenant with Abraham and circumcision as its outward sign 
is union with Christ in his circumcision on the cross. When Jesus was cut off in satisfaction of divine justice and rose again for our justification. And then as Christians, as covenant members, in an ongoing way, to be circumcised in Christ means dying to sin. Putting off the old man through the transformation which takes place day by day in sanctification. Colossians 2 verse 11 says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So it's not just when we become a Christian, it's as Christians... We, we, this process of, of the circumcision becomes a process, an ongoing process based on the powerful work of Christ's circumcision. In other words, the work of the cross. Our flesh, the sins of our flesh, not for us, our physical flesh, but our spiritual sins need to be cut off through spiritual circumcision. And of course, um, the parallels with the new covenant outward sign of water baptism are obvious, aren't they? The water judgments in the Old Testament are called baptisms, as we've studied previously. The cross is described as a baptism. John the Baptist called Messiah's judgment of fire a baptism. And symbolically water baptism is presented in the New Testament as a participation in, with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. His judgment ordeal on our behalf. behalf. Baptism in the Spirit is death and resurrection with Christ resulting in the receiving of the Holy Spirit, not just for a few, some kind of special conference, but for all Christians. And Jesus commands his church to baptise the nations, in other words, to separate them, to cut them off, to cut off the elect from the world and its values and incorporate them into the new covenant community. And so... To sum up very briefly and quickly, human obedience is inseparable and indispensable in the Abrahamic covenant, as it is in the gospel. The gospel, the, the gospel although this does not amount to a works principle, which is operative in the Mosaic law and in the Garden of Eden, is not the ground of blessing. But in the covenant of grace, the ultimate blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, in other words, only come through obedience. Because obedience is an inevitable accompaniment of faith through which the righteousness of God is appropriated. Obedience and faith cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. Obedience and faith appropriate the promised gift of grace 
And the absence of obedience just simply tells you that someone has no faith. Because the kind of grace the gospel gives is not some, uh, as is often presented, like some kind of grace, some kind of product or fluid or thing. It's Jesus Christ himself. The kind of grace given in the gospel is a renewing grace. An image of God restoring grace. It's more than just forgiveness. It's, it's, the, it's a restoration of the image of God within us. And that's why we can make sense of verses like James 2 verse 14. Which says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? You see, that kind of faith is not faith at all. At least it's not saving faith. It's not Christian faith. Obedience is one of the blessings promised in God's gracious covenant. And in Christ he is restoring us to the image of God, to the image of his Son. We are his, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has ordained that we should walk in. So, dear friends, when we present the gospel, when we talk about grace, when we give the free offer of the grace, we, we need to get this right because we actually do need to preach the gospel as it is presented, as Jesus presented it, as the apostles presented it. It is a call out of the world into Christ based on free everything is provided but you do have to respond it doesn't just happen you have to repent believe accept obey follow leave all this then uh, is comes to the end of um, us trying to describe this abrahamic covenant a covenant of promise yes a covenant built on God's sovereignty and his power, but also with obligations to obey. And once we understand that, we'll be better placed to love and to preach the gospel in the balance with which it is presented in the scriptures. Amen. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.